we've been doing a lot of work in this sermon series in what, we, what I've called semiotics, the study of sign symbol, how words come from places. They're metaphors and they have backstories. And today is Pentecost and we're going to have communion. And so I thought I would talk about some of those words, but our on-ramp is going to be a little different. I want to actually on-ramp and get started by looking at Paul doing semiotics. And the way Paul uses an Old Testament image and a metaphor in 2 Corinthians 3 to talk about the Holy Spirit. So I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what is being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Now where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face Beholding the glory of the Lord, being transferred, uh, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul is, in 2 Corinthians 3, trying to lay out what the gospel is for these Corinthians and reminding them of the gospel he proclaimed and how he proclaimed it with such boldness. And then, to, to help them understand the significance of the gospel in his life, in their lives, he dips back to this very strange Old Testament passage in Exodus 34. And so we're, we're dealing then with Moses. And Moses is considered the greatest of the prophets, which, which I always like to point out because Moses doesn't actually do a lot of what we think prophets do. He does no, no future telling, no prediction. Okay? But, but why is he considered a prophet and the greatest of the prophets? Well, because prophets hear from God and give the, voice, the message of God to the people. And Moses is the greatest of these because he did it face to face with God. He would go up on the mountain and actually meet God face to face. And Exodus 34 says when he would go do this, he'd go meet with, with God face to face, that he would, his face would get shiny. Like it's a really weird sort of description. Like, like glowing, like bright. He'd have a bright face. And uh, he'd come down off the mountain and basically, the text says, it would freak the, the Israelites out. Okay, they'd look at, Mo, at Mo, like, imagine if my face was like a big flashlight right now, and you could just see my face shining, like, and you could see God's presence in my face. It would probably freak you out too. Okay, and so what, what Moses would do is he would wear a veil over his face. Now, a veil is basically, it's, a veil is the same word for curtain. Okay, we use different words for that now, but a veil is basically a curtain. And so what you would do is you'd wear a curtain over your face. Moses would wear this curtain over his face so people couldn't see. And, and this, it's not uncommon, um, even in the Middle East today, to see women wear veils, um, a sort of a modesty thing. Um, but it, it, guys, like, never wear them. Okay, this is really kind of strange. Okay, 
and uh, in this in this year of us wearing masks, that has become way more normal, right? But still, a veil would be weird for a guy. Okay, so Moses would wear this veil. And uh, what he would do is he'd come down off the mountain, and when he would speak the word of the Lord, he would take the veil off. So people would understand and be a little freaked out when they hear, heard the word of the Lord. And then he'd put the veil back on. So that's what Exodus 34 talks about. Paul takes a further interpretation of the veil. Okay, and, and so what Paul is then saying is, Moses didn't just wear the veil to hide his face because people would freak out. He also hid his face, because what does he say? Um, Because of what was being brought to an end. In other words, the longer Moses was away from the mountain, the less shiny his face would be. His face would be kind of normal. And and Paul's interpretation of that is that that Moses didn't want the people to see him get less shiny either. And and, and like, like he's coming down to earth or something. He wanted them to think he was still shiny. Now, the image of the veil has another meaning that Paul does not specifically refer to here, but I think he has in mind. And that is the idea of the curtain or the veil in the tabernacle and in the temple. So in the tabernacle, there was this area called the Holy of Holies. And the priest only went in there once a year, and it was separated at the temple by this giant, thick curtain. And so it was a reminder that, you know, you could not go in. It's the same thing as Moses' veil, really. Okay? That you, you, you don't want to mess with God. Remember the holiness of God. And, and so the Ark of the Covenant was in there, and the priests only went in there so often. You could only deal with God's presence indirectly. And that's part of the message. Like you had to do it through the priest, you had to do it through your sacrifices, you had to look through the veil. You couldn't look to God face to face the way Moses did or the way the priest got to do once a year because you can't handle it. This metaphor of a veil or a curtain has been prevalent in Christian thought and writing. We live our lives with this spiritual dimension outside of our awareness. In other words, part of the metaphor becomes... Like, when we live our lives, there's this other part of the world, this spiritual life that's sort of happening behind the scenes, behind the curtain, behind the veil. And we've all had moments, I think, when the veil got thinner or we peeked behind the veil, right? Maybe when we got married or when we had kids or grandkids. Maybe one time where God clearly spared us from an accident, the beauty of a sunset or a miraculous vision of, of Niagara Falls or something amazing, where all of a sudden you realize there's, there's this higher thing going on, this greater purpose, a presence, a reality, where, where the veil is a little thinner, right? And we can sense that something's going on. Now, in, in the... Uh, In the temple, when Jesus dies on the cross, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all report that that curtain tore. In other words, that when Jesus dies, there's there's no more curtain. Like there's a rip in the curtain. There's access all of a sudden to God. No more separation between God's presence and us. 
In fact, you're in the, your cars right now, but if you were in our sanctuary, our sanctuary is set up like a temple. So there's where we all sit, and then there's these steps up to where there's a kind of a stage area. And then there's another step up where the choir normally sits, and it's supposed to be kind of the Holy of Holies. And in our sanctuary, there is a curtain, but the curtain doesn't separate the Holies of Holies. If you think about our sanctuary, some of you may not have been in the sanctuary, the curtain is all the way in the back, behind the cross. In other words, there's nothing behind the curtain anymore. We have full access to God. But Paul is not talking directly about the veil in the temple. Okay, Paul is actually talking about the veil of Moses and saying that when we read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, a lot of times we read with a veil. We can't see, but in Christ, the veil has been lifted. And, and Paul, Paul isn't just talking about the cross, like that is the veil in the temple, but Paul is making a connection to the Spirit. Paul is talking about Pentecost. The term Pentecost means 50th. Okay, it's just a random kind of Greek word. And it was a Jewish festival way before it was a Christian festival. It was the 50th day past the, the start of the festival of first fruits. In other words, it's the 50th day after Easter. Okay, because Jesus rises on the day of first fruits. Okay, so 50 days later, there was a celebration to end. Uh, what was the typical early growing season. In Israel, there are multiple growing seasons. This was the early one, the main one. And so people come from all over the place to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And it's there that the Holy Spirit comes. And everybody hears the, the, the words of Peter and what's going on in their own language because they're from all kinds of different places. They speak all kinds of different languages. And a couple of key points to clarify in what Paul is doing, is saying. First of all, the, the Holy Spirit has been around before this. Okay, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, also writes the book of Luke. So they're like a, they're like a, a combo. Okay, Luke is, a, is a, a prequel to Acts, and Acts is a kind of a sequel to Luke. And in Luke, the Holy Spirit shows up all the time. Uh, when Mary conceives, when the Holy Spirit descends when Jesus is sent out into the, the wilderness, the Spirit has been around. But what happens in Acts is the Holy Spirit who's been around and been kind of a loose cannon all of a sudden comes to descend on people, to rest on them and to be within them. And then Paul clarifies twice in our passage that the Spirit is the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit that's in your life is none other than Jesus Christ. That Jesus is actually with you. He is on you. He is in you. And you see now, not only has the veil torn, but Paul says the veil has been removed. There's no more separation from the shininess of God. There's no more separation from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is now you. You are the Holy of Holies. You are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. You are the dwelling place of Jesus Christ. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is clarity. There's an unveiling. That we are being transformed by this shininess of God because Jesus is within us. But here's our problem. Our problem is we still live in a broken world. And so we still feel like there's a veil. 
It's hard to, to live in tune with our shininess. Okay, over time, our, our shininess can kind of wear out as the, the, the dinginess and the darkness of this world wears on us. And so what Jesus gave us and what the church developed over time were some special occasions where the veil was thinner. Some special times where we could say, oh, okay, let's get back in tune with the Holy Spirit. And, and there's lots of different ways that we do this, but one of the ways we're talking about today is sacraments. The word sacred comes from the Latin meaning consecrated, dedicated, purified, something that's set aside for holy purposes. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments or sacred acts. Protestants, we have two. And our standard is that Christ has to have done them and commanded that we do them. That's how the Reformers decided we're going to have two. Interestingly enough, you could make that argument for washing feet, but the church never picked up on that. I'm kind of glad. Personally, I don't really like feet. I mean, feet are fine, but I don't really want to touch yours. Um, we have communion and baptism. Okay? Uh, I'm going to focus today on communion because we're actually having communion. We're having baptism, a baptism in a few weeks when, we, when we're fully outside. But um, So for Protestants, it's communion and it's baptism. And those are these special times where the veil's a little thinner. Okay, now to understand baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's helpful to hear a couple other words the church has used for them. One is the word seal. Okay, one is the word sign. Let's do sign first. Sign, um, it, is, is, it, it means that the, the sacrament signals something. So for us, there's nothing actually special about the water. There's nothing special about the bread and the juice. In fact, You've got a little cup today. I have trouble even calling what you're about to have bread, okay? It's like a, it's not bread, right? It's this little wafer kind of thing. Um, this juice is pretty good, but the bread, I have, it's suspect, right? And there's nothing special for us about the bread, the juice, the water. When I, when I fill baptismal water, I feel, fill it out of the sink in the bathroom in my office, Okay, it's not like it's not the, the elements are. What's what we're doing is we're signaling, we're signifying. We call it a sign. So what it's doing is it's pointing to a spiritual reality. Okay, so so that's why we can baptize children and babies because they don't have to make a commitment. We are celebrating a sign that Christ is going to do something in their lives as they grow up. We can use whatever bread, juice, wine we need to. Because it's just a symbol. It's a symbol of this ultimate reality of what Christ is doing. Then the, the other word we use is a seal. And uh, when I was a kid and I heard that baptism and communion were a seal, I always thought like a Ziploc bag. But I realized there's no way Paul meant a Ziploc bag. You know what I mean? Like the early church did the one thinking Ziploc bag. What were they thinking? They were thinking of the way you, a, a king or an important person might seal a letter like with wax or with clay, and they'd have an imprint and they'd press down. So part of what we do in the sacrament is we, we seal the work of the Holy Spirit for one another. Right? So there's this component we have with God where we're signifying something that God is doing, but it's also a seal the way you, you and I are saying, and, and I'm saying to you as you take communion today, that God's grace is for you, that the Spirit is with you that uh, God is sustaining you for whatever he, ever he has for you. 
So the way John Calvin used to talk about this, I love this language, is he would talk about it as real presence. That the specialness of this sacrament isn't in the bread, it's not in the juice, it's in the table. It's in the act. Because Jesus calls us to do it, because Jesus uh, does it himself and celebrates the communion himself, it's a special place where the veil is thinner, where we can count on God's presence today as we take the elements. And the very act of communion is an act of semiotics. It's an act of, of symbol, of sign, of metaphor. Paul, or Jesus, actually uses the metaphor of Passover to talk about himself. And then Paul adds the words to the sacrament, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it bread to represent the breaking of a body but he said this is my body on the night he was betrayed he took the cup representing the blood of the lamb and he said this is my blood shed for you and so here we are going to take communion once again in our cars once again in this strange world we live in but remember that, that no matter how we take it or where we take it what we're signaling, what we're symbolizing is the Holy Spirit within us. And there's a, there's a special something that goes on here, not in, the, not in the bread and the juice, but in the fact that right now, as we have these elements and as we're going to partake in communion, the veil is thinner. Right now, the Holy Spirit is with us in a special way. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So where you need freedom right now, here we go. Okay, where, where you need clarity right now, here it is. Come, come to the table. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So as you come to the table, tear off your veils. Confess your sins. Cast off anything that is coming between you and God. And taste and see that the Lord is good. Is there anyone out there that did not get a little cup for communion? Flash your lights now. I'll make sure that we get to you. Good. Looks like everybody did, Jim. So, Jim and Hazel, so thank you. So take your cup. You can kind of fold the, the little part that sticks out back and forth. You want to pull back just the clear part with the purple on it so you have your little wafer. Again, nothing special about the wafer, but it represents the broken body of Jesus Christ for you. And in some ways, as we take it into ourselves, as we're eating symbolically the body, we are reminded that the Holy Spirit is already within us. So pull that plastic piece back, take your wafer, and eat. You can peel back your juice part. If you have trouble with this, I'll come greet afterwards and I can help anybody open that needs help with this. This is just regular juice. But it represents the blood of Christ shed for us. And as we drink, be reminded that the Holy Spirit is within you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Take and drink. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, be poured out upon us on these elements that we have partaken in. Let us feel your real presence. Lord, for those 
who carry heavy veils and can't see you right now and can't feel your presence. Tear the veil away. May we be aware of your presence and your Holy Spirit within us in a special way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.